0: I want you to put yourself into the robe and the sandals of 12 ordinary men. Four fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, an eventual trader. Some guys that we know nothing about them other than their names show up on the list of apostles. 12 very ordinary men, one a doubter. One very impetuous, constantly putting his foot into his mouth. Put yourself in their robe and in their sandals this morning. They've been around Jesus for a short amount of time. They've seen some miracles. Uh, They've heard some of his teaching and now they are about to head off as freshly minted apostles. They're about to head off as complete rookies, green as can be, to parts unknown To preach themselves, their very first sermons, and to heal and cast out demons for the first time. And if that wasn't enough, they're going to do this without Jesus. Without Jesus. He's going to go off in other places and they're going to go off in pairs to do ministry for the very first time. Now, he's given them his power. He's given them his authority, but they haven't used it yet. I mean, I don't even know if they felt it when he gave them his authority. And now they're going to go out and command demons to leave people's bodies. It had to be both exhilarating and terrifying. Put yourself in their shoes. Maybe it was like that first day on a new job. A big job. A very challenging job. That very first day and how nervous you were as you stepped into that role. Or maybe your first varsity game. Right, Your first game where the stakes were higher and the crowds were bigger and the pressure was more intense. Or maybe if you were in the military, your first deployment after boot camp. Perhaps this is how these men felt. They are about to leave now on this short-term mission-oriented trip throughout Israel. And Jesus is going to give them basic instructions, basic education for this a time frame and really for all time. His instructions will contain approximately 28 commands. Wow, I kind of lost track about number seven, right? 28 commands. There will be some promises and there will be a few scary warnings. Go with me to Matthew chapter 10. You're one of these ordinary people about to do ministry for the first time. I want you to hear these words of Jesus as if you're hearing them for the very first time. Matthew chapter 10, these 12, Jesus uh, starting verse five, these 12, Jesus sent out after instructing them, educating them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons freely. You received freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your muddy belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. In whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts. And scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake. As a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over. Do not worry about how or what you are to say. For it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak. But it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death and his father a child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore... Whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Father in heaven, thank you for the inspired word of God for every word here is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training and righteousness that the man of God may be equipped. Thoroughly, adequately for every good work. And so we pray today that your word would equip your people to do your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is basic principles for Christian ministry part three. Their basic instructions that Jesus gave them that day become for us our basic principles for all Christian ministry. Throughout the entire church age and really into the tribulation age. Now, my assumption with these sermons and this little mini series within the gospel of Matthew is this. Christians engage in Christian ministry. That's the assumption going on here as I preach to you this morning. That if you're a Christian you're engaging in Christian ministry because every member is a minister and God has gifted every believer and we're all part of the priesthood of the saints and so we all have a ministry. That's the assumption. And the other assumption is that we want to do this ministry in a Christ-honoring way and in a biblical way. Not according to the world, not according to our own opinions or the wisdom of man, but we want to line up our Christian ministry as Christians with the Word of God. That's my assumption this morning as I preach to you this uh, third part of this series. Now, if that is not true, if you're a Christian and you're not engaged in Christian ministry or you don't want to be engaged in Christian ministry in a Christ honoring biblical way, then you will not see much relevance from this sermon. This will miss you. It'll go over your head. You'll just not connect to it at all. And so it's really a barometer for us. Are we engaged in ministry to start with? And if we are, we're going to find some principles here that connect to our life, and and we will be very interested in them. Now, I want to bring up the slide there. Oh, no, we didn't want to do it that way. One at a time. Uh, oh, oh, that's just mine. Okay, don't look behind you. Some always think what's here is there, but that's not the case. So we got a technological magician down here. He... Business stuff. All right. So here we go. We're we're looking at these principles and there's going to be 10 in total. And so I want to just uh, review real quick where we've been so far. So principle number one is you go to the Jew first. Go to the Jew first. That's in verses five and six. That was two weeks ago. Principle number two, proclaim repentance. So we go to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And when we get there, proclaim repentance. Repentance, turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ. And we proclaim this repentance in light of the return of Christ. Number three, we do good deeds to validate then our message, to authenticate. Uh, our message of faith and repentance in Christ, we show love, we do loving, good deeds to those to whom we minister. Now I want you to see these are abiding principles for all Christian ministry. You can check them one at a time. you can look at every ministry that we would ever do in the name of Christ. whether it's good news clubs or walking into a nursing home and everything in between, these things will always abide. Number four, as Christians, we give it away. We do ministry free of charge. Uh, we, we do ministry pro bono. We're not here to make profit off of people in the name of Christ. We're here to give away the gospel, give away Bibles, give away ministry, give away counseling, give away discipleship. That is the nature of the, of the Christian faith. Amen? So we are to give it away. Number four. Today now we begin with number five. Even though we're giving it away, that does not mean that ministers shouldn't be supported. And that brings us to principle number five, accept help from God's people. Look back with me at verses 9 to 13. Jesus tells them as they're about to go on this journey, do not acquire gold, silver, or copper. You see that in diminishing value there, right? The copper would simply be like a penny. He's either telling them, do not pack any money. It's that at least. And it's also, do not make any money on this trip. Because they're going to have incredible powers, right? Right? To heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. Can you imagine the money they could have made off of that power? Can you imagine what people would have given them to be recipients of that? And so Jesus is not even going to let these guys be tempted with having a little satchel on their, on their side. If people wanted to give them money, they will have no way to carry it. Do not acquire gold, silver, or copper for your money belts. Don't even take a knapsack. Not a, Don't even take a bag for your journey. You can't take an extra coat or an extra pair of sandals or an extra staff. Why not? For the worker is worthy of his literally food. Translated support in New American Standard. The worker is worthy of his support. And then this very fascinating A very Jewish uh, kind of uh, thing going on here. Verses 11 to 13. You go into a city. Inquire who's worthy. Stay at that house. Don't bounce around in other words. Don't constantly be looking for a better situation. Don't constantly be looking for better accommodations. You go to one place and you stay there the entire time. And as you enter the house you give it your greeting. Peace be to this house. Shalom be to this house. Give it your greeting. And if that house is worthy. Then give it your blessing of peace. And if it is unworthy, take it back. Verse 13. So this is principle number five. We are to accept help from God's people. Now for the twelve, Jesus is instructing them. Then that they are to go as they are. Go as they are with simply the clothes on their back. Nothing else. They are not to be loaded down with suitcases of self-reliance. They are to go in total dependence upon God through God's people. In fact, the message and the ministry here is so urgent, they do not have time to pack. They do not have time to go home and, and load up uh, their goods. There's no knapsack, no extra shirt, no extra sandals, no extra anything. Now, we need to understand something here in the context. This is not a long-term mission to Gentile and foreign lands that would require planning and packing And precautions. That's not what's going on here in Matthew 10. This is an urgent, short-term, national religious survey. He wants to send these men out on a blitzkrieg throughout the cities of Israel. Over a two or three week period, more than likely. To get a survey of if the people are ready for their king. Are they ready for the Messiah? That's what's happening here. So we don't need to take these uh, instructions in their immediate historical context and say, well, this is the abiding command for all missions. No, that would be foolish, right? To go into foreign Gentile lands with no packing, no precautions, no planning at all. That's not what Jesus is calling them to. What he is calling them to, though, is a total dependence on God through God's people, through God's people. Now, we might think, is this presumptuous? Are they tempting God here by leaving with nothing but the clothes on their back? Because Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Why is this not putting God to the test? Why is this not presumptuous? Well, it's not at all because these Jewish men, as they go to Jewish brethren within the nation of Israel, can can absolutely expect hospitality. This is their culture, right? This is a culture where hospitality is deeply ingrained. Think back to Abraham and Sarah with their visitors. I mean, it's not just here's a cup of cold water. It's kill the, kill the calf, sit down and have a feast for hours at a time. In, in, in ancient Middle Eastern times, even as today, hospitality is a big deal. When people show up to your house, even a stranger, you were, you were to consider like God has made a visit on you. And to treat them accordingly. And so these men, as Jewish men, in a religious, spiritual arena here, can absolutely expect hospitality. Every village they go into, they can expect someone will open their home to them. And invite them in. That was the nature of things. So this is not this is not presumptuous, and it's not frivolous, and it's not foolhardy at all. Now when they get into each uh, village or city... They're to do some uh, preliminary work. And the word there is inquire. And that's really too soft of a word. The word is to scrutinize, examine, or search. And so as they come in, they are to start scrutinizing and examining and doing interviews and talking to the people of that village of who in this village is worthy. Who in this village is known as a godly, God-fearing worshiper of Yahweh? Who in this village should we stay with? And so they they ask those questions and they find that that particular home. And then they follow three steps. <clears throat> peace be to this house. And then if they are worthy, which means if they receive you and your message. Now, they won't know that right away, right? So there's some, some of this is tentative. You find who you think is worthy. You go to that house. You say, peace be to that house. And by the time you leave, you will know whether that house was worthy. Because it's based on, did they receive you and your message? Did they receive the message? And if they did receive the message, when it's time to leave, then you say, let your peace remain upon this house. But if they reject you at any point in time, if they show themselves to not be worthy, to not be hospitable, to not be one of God's people, then you say, oops, (laughs) I take it back. (laughs) That peace I blessed you with earlier, I am now taking it back. Because you have rejected me and this peace only resides... Where the gospel of the king is accepted. You can't have this peace that I'm offering you as a messenger of Christ. And reject Christ. And so I will take it back. Now the abiding principle here is we are to accept help from God's people. You cannot do your ministry alone. That is the point. You are not in it alone No matter how gifted you are, no matter how experienced you are, no matter how talented you are, you and I need help to do the ministry God has called us to do. We must graciously receive help and support from God's people. We are one giant team. This is a team. Every player on the team must contribute to the success of the team. And we all need each other. The glamorous quarterback does nothing without those linemen down in the trenches doing their job, right? And it is that way with all of the body of Christ. We are one army. We are one army where every single person's role is critical in this war. We are one body. One body where even the pinky toe matters. We need each other. We are not independent of each other. And so principle number five is accept help from God's people, from those who are worthy, from those who receive Christ. What will this look like? This means that we will accept money from God's people. We will accept literally here food. A worker is worthy of his food. This will include prayer and advice and and mentoring, and counseling, and coaching, and equipping, and training, feedback, support. The truth is, whatever God has called you to do as a Christian, you need help from God's people to do what God has called you to do. No one is an island unto himself, and no one, no matter how independent, is independent. See, the body of Christ is to not be overly dependent on each other, and we're not to be independent of each other. We are to be interdependent. <clears throat> that is the word to describe the body of Christ in all ministry. We are interdependent. Think, for example, throughout the rest of the New Testament, Paul had his partners. Paul was always Part of a team. Nearly every letter he writes back to the church is Paul and silence. Paul and Timothy. Paul and so and so. Ministry done in teamwork. Paul accepted money from the Philippians. He accepted support from the churches that he planted so that he could plant other churches. He was bivocational at times. He was fully vocational at times because of the support of God's people. Those who had received Christ... Paul involved others in his ministry. Even Paul, as wise as he was, gifted as he was, independent as he was, he involved others constantly in his ministry. Not only the greatest missionary and the greatest preacher, he was likely the greatest disciple maker <clears throat> outside of Christ that the Christian church has ever seen. Let me give you another example of what I think this looks like and it's, uh, in, the, in the context of the local church. And that would be in the plurality of elders and deacons in a local church. Can you imagine a church where there is one pastor, one elder, and one deacon? Oh my goodness, how tragic that would be. How terrible that would be. How underserved the body of Christ would be. But no, I think the plurality of elders and the plurality of deacons speak to this issue. No one can do this work by themselves. And this is just a small sample of it. So, as elders, we share communion and we share baptism, we share preaching, and we share counseling, and we share leadership, and we share disciple making. It's not a pyramid structure, it's a flat structure. No one's on the pedestal here as leadership. We have fourteen deacons sharing the load so that the body of Christ can be ministered to adequately. And God designed it that way, and that's an outworking of this very principle that we are to accept help from the body of Christ. Now, there are some really good results that come from putting this principle into practice. Think with me on some of these results. Think with me if certain places in Christendom would practice this principle, we would eliminate a lot of foolishness and a lot of worldliness, right? So here are some good results. Instead of the Christian strutting around like a noisy peacock as God's gift to fill in the blank... You grow dependent on God like never before. Imagine how dependent these men were as they leave with these instructions. They've got nothing but the clothes on their back. They don't have money in their pocket. They don't have a lunch. They have nothing. They're walking and they are praying. Oh, God, we are stepping out here in faith. We're going to grow in dependence on God like never before. Instead of having patronizing attitudes toward those to whom we minister, whether that be missions or in the local church, instead of having the patronizing attitude of Mr. Know-it-all, Mr. Bible Answer Man, or or Mr. Do-it-all, I can handle anything physically, instead of having that kind of attitude, instead we humbly accept help from others. If you have this principle in place, you know you need help. You're constantly looking and asking for help. Instead of putting some one or two or three individuals on a pedestal and making that person think that they're irreplaceable within this ministry. No, you grow in interdependence together. Interdependence like a body grows. That's what happens so often in Christian ministry. Could be women's ministry, could be youth ministry, could be any kind of ministry. You you start to have the, the recipients of that ministry, the The consumers of that ministry put an individual on a pedestal and that person begins to think they're irreplaceable. Which is as far from biblical ministry as you can get. Because no one is irreplaceable. Instead, if you don't do that, if you keep it all brothers and sisters in Christ who need each other, then we're going to grow in interdependence and we're going to grow in appreciation for one another. We're going to grow in recognition of, I need you and you need me. Amen? That's the body of Christ in action. That is an abiding principle for all Christian ministry. What does a great-grandmother, <clears throat> a fourth-grader, and a Kerr County prisoner have in common? Well, they all have taught me something about Christian ministry. They all have helped me do, at a particular time, a Christian ministry that God has called me to. A great-grandmother dying of cancer, a fourth-grader in Awana, and a Kerr County prisoner helping me keep some control in the room because I desperately needed help. <laughs> That's interdependence on the people of God. So look at those first five then. You can be doing all of these, and you can check them all off and be faithful and be doing them all exactly right And you can still be spurned, right? You can still be rejected or ignored or even hated and persecuted. No good deed goes unpunished. (laughs) You can do all five in a stellar fashion. But the recipients will have none of it. That brings us to number six. We are to move on from those who reject us. Look at verses 14 and 15. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words. So as you and your message. As you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable or bearable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember what they were all about. They even abused angels. It will be more tolerable for them in the day of judgment than for that city. Principle number six is is going to be brief, and it's very simple. Move on from those who reject you. And here in their culture, that was symbolized by shaking the dust off of their sandals. This was a Jewish practice when they would go into a Gentile land or a uh, predominantly Gentile area of, of Israel. When they would walk on their streets and walk in their cities, when they would leave that Gentile, unclean, impure area and go back into the Jewish area, they would dust the, their sandals off because they didn't even want to bring Gentile dirt into their houses. It was all symbolic. And they were treating those Gentiles as unclean, as unbelievers. And that's what's going on here. Paul did this twice in his ministry. Acts 13.51, Acts 18.6, Paul shook the dust off of his sandals and moved on. Now, to force it, to try to force the gospel where you and your message is being rejected, is to cast your pearls before swine. It is to cast holy things before dogs. Jesus has already taught us not to do that in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He's already taught us about discerning evangelism. That you can actually do more damage than good if you continue to try to force the message on someone who is rejecting it. If you try to ramrod the gospel, all you're going to do is harden a heart. You're going to harden that heart to Christ, to the gospel, and to other Christians. You're going to harden that heart to that future Christian that God may send into their life. Because as soon as maybe a year from now or five years from now, someone comes to them with the gospel and they're doing it in the right way. They're going to immediately go back in their mind to that obnoxious Christian that was ramrodding this thing down their throat and be reminded of their own hardness to it. So if if we are rejected and if our message is rejected, shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next person. God will handle it. That's what verse 15 is telling us. There's a lot in verse 15. One principle of verse 15, P.S., you know, side note here, footnote, is uh, judgment is on a spectrum. You know, there are degrees of guilt and degrees of judgment. And what verse 15 is telling us, and it's very profound, is that for the people who reject Christ and the gospel, and, their, and his messengers, okay, who reject the light of Christ, their judgment will be worse than than what those people did in Sodom and Gomorrah. See, it is far worse to reject Christ than to sin without the light of Christ. It is far worse to reject an apostle or messenger of Jesus Christ than it was to abuse angels in Sodom and Gomorrah. God values us more than angels. God puts us above their value in His sight. And so to reject us in our message is the most serious of sins. In fact, there is no sin greater than rejecting Christ in the light of the gospel. It raises the stakes. And so that's what verse 15 is showing us. God will take care of it and you can move on and trust Him to deal with these individuals. Now, principle number six leads us right into principle number seven for Christian ministry, and that is expect persecution. Expect persecution. Look at 16 to 25. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I mean, we could have a sermon right there just on that phrase. Sheep. Innocent, defenseless, passive, helpless, helpless. Edible <laughs> in the midst of wolves. Dangerous, carnivorous, running in packs, snarling teeth, vicious, efficient killers. Can you imagine? You're about to go do ministry for the first time, and this is what Jesus tells you. Look, pay attention, I'm sending you out into some very dangerous situations. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Four different animals used in one verse. But beware of men, they will hand you over to their courts, their little Sanhedrins. Their little local courts throughout the land of Israel. They're going to hand you over and try you for blaspheming God. Saying that the Messiah has come and they're going to scourge you in their synagogues. Who else would be scourged one day? Who else would have the flesh ripped off of his back suffering for our sins one day? They're going to beat you with a whip in church. Can you imagine? And you'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and Gentiles. And that just played out in the book of Acts, didn't it? Paul and his team and Peter and their team going before Gentiles and governors and kings. You see that throughout the book of Acts. And when they hand you over, you don't have to prepare a sermon in advance for persecution. Do you need to study to prepare sermons and teach? Absolutely. But do you study to be ready for persecution? No, you don't need to worry about that because the Spirit of God is going to give you what you need in the moment. And then how bad will it get? How bad will this persecution get? Look at verse 21. Families will be divided by Christ. Jewish brother will betray Jewish brother. And Muslim will betray Muslim. And and as Christ comes into various families in the world and divides them, there will be betrayal. And a father, even his child and children, their parents, and and not just betray them, but look at it. Verse 21, cause them to be put to death, stone them, kill them. Yes, they're guilty of very family members, of the most intimate of human connections. Verse 22, you'll be hated by all. This is hyperbole. To show the extreme uh, duress of this persecution because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end of that persecution. Physically, if you endure to the end, you'll be saved, you'll be rescued. And now in verses 21, 22, and 23, Jesus is probably talking about the tribulation period. This is a prophecy that has gone from near time to these apostles to way down the road to a time that hasn't even happened yet. Look at it. Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. I I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. That's his second coming. Most likely. That's the return of Christ. And so this has now become a prophecy into the future. Now, it's crystal clear that Jesus here initially is looking past his death and resurrection to early church history. In Acts 5.40, we learn that the apostles, these very men, were flogged by their Jewish leaders. Acts 5.40. He warned them. He told them exactly what was coming. And we know from the book of Acts that Paul and Peter and John, they were all persecuted. James was killed with a sword. We know that these men, these very men, they endured beatings and arrests, trials and mocking. They were exiled and they faced death. All of them died eventually as martyrs for Christ. And so Jesus is clearly looking out to the short term beyond his resurrection. But as I said earlier, he's also looking out into the tribulation period. And that's very clear from verse 23. Verse 23 is a prophecy then of Jacob's trouble. Verse 23 is a prophecy of the time of the tribulation period, the seven years before the return of Christ. But what is our abiding principle? It's simply this, expect persecution in doing Christian ministry, or at a minimum. Okay, I know you're thinking, well, we don't really face persecution here yet in America. So let me me minimize it. At a minimum, don't be surprised if it happens. That's the abiding principle. Some of you may say we should expect it, even in America. Others would say, I'm not so sure, but I would at least say this. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard if you are rejected in doing Christian ministry. And when it comes to you, be like a wily snake and sneak away if possible. Snakes don't like confrontation. Snakes want to hide. Snakes want to sneak away. That's what he means, be shrewd as a serpent. But then when you can't sneak away, and it's unavoidable, and there's no escape from it, then be like an innocent dove. In other words, take it. Endure it. Innocently and purely like a dove. On the one hand, a martyr complex does not honor God. You don't go looking for it. You don't go seeking it. You're like a snake trying to hide where you're not seen. But on the other hand, once it comes, you're not a falcon. You're a dove. A Christian, then, should never be surprised by resistance, rejection, or even hardcore persecution. After all, our master was executed for his trouble. I mean, Jesus was accused of being a drunk, a glutton and demon possessed. And a disciple is not above his master and a slave is not above his Lord. And so what should we expect if Jesus gets falsely accused? If Jesus is misunderstood, if Jesus is executed for his trouble, if Jesus is scourged, if Jesus is nailed to a cross, what should we expect? If we're doing Christian ministry the way the Bible calls us to. As we do our ministry, we may encounter people who are defiant, who are deceptive, and who are traitorous. I have all three of those. Thankfully, it's not the majority. It's just one here and there from time to time. But that's the reality of being godly in an ungodly world. Joseph was jammed up by his brothers Moses had his mutiny, David had his Saul, and Jesus had his Judas. Why should we expect it to be different for us? It won't be, it shouldn't be, it can't be. And so when it comes, because we're expecting it, and we're not going to be surprised by it, so when it comes, we've come then to number eight. This will be our last one for today. When this happens, we need to fear God and not man. We need to fear God and not death. We need to fear God and not what man can do to us. Look at twenty six to thirty-one. I won't reread it, you can scan it there. The the theme of this little passage is Fear God not man. Do not fear the persecutors. Jesus is saying, Because one day everything will come into the light, one day all truth will be known, one day truth and justice will prevail. Not in this world, not by human courts, but by the court of God. All truth and justice will prevail. And so we can fear God and not man. We can be forthright then and not fearful, bold and not bashful. That's what he's saying here in these in this passage. Do not fear those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. We can roar like a tiger, not squeak around like a timid mouse. Do not fear man, fear God. We need to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They feared God, not man. They said, we will not bow to your idol. You can throw us into the fiery furnace. We are not going to serve your idols of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. We are taking a stand. We are going to be forthright, not fearful, bold, not bashful. We're a tiger, not a mouse. We are taking a stand because this is the truth. We have God on our side. We have truth on our side. We have the gospel on our side. We need to speak up, speak out, and fear God and not man. What can man do to us? This passage would teach us to fear the one who values you more than creation. God values you more than angels. He values you more than sparrows. He values you more than all of creation. Jesus didn't die for sparrows. Jesus died for us. Fear the one who values you. Isn't that an interesting dynamic? Fear the one who knows you intimately. Knows your fears. Knows that you're bashful. Knows that you're a timid mouse apart from the Holy Spirit. Fear the one who knows you intimately. So intimately, he's already counted the number of hairs on your head. Fear the one who watches over you constantly. That's what Jesus is reminding them of here. Not one sparrow falls to the ground. Apart from your Father, God is sovereign over every detail of everything, including your life. He's numbered the hairs of your head, verse 30. So do not fear, you're more valuable. Your Heavenly Father watches over you constantly. Finish the sentence. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know, there's a level of persecution that comes from your own flesh. Your flesh persecutes you, if you're a Christian, because the Spirit is warring against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit. So there is a level of persecution that comes from just being a Christian. And the world persecutes you, and the devil persecutes you, and his people will persecute you. All who desire, all who long to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, obviously, that's on a spectrum in different cultures and different times. But when it comes, we should not fear the human instruments. They're just mere human instruments. In this day of fear, let us not fear what man can do to us by persecution or pandemic. Let us not fear death so much that we fail to live. Let us fear and revere and trust Almighty God who has numbered our hairs and numbered our days. This is the eighth principle for all Christian ministry fear God. Fear God. Fear God and not man. You bow with me in prayer. Just with your head bowed, I'm going to review the list. I'll bring that back up, thank you. Just think through these with your head bowed and your eyes closed. Just to think through these principles and which one stands out for you this morning that you need to give attention to. Go to the Jew first. Well, praise the Lord. We had somebody in our church step forward that wants to minister to that community here in Kerrville. Thank you, Lord. Do you know any Jewish people who are unreached with the gospel? You need to go to them first. Number two, are you proclaiming repentance? Is it part of your message? Number three, do good deeds. Again, I want you to just examine yourself. Ask yourself, which one needs the most attention in my life this morning? Number four, give it away. Number five, accept help from God's people. Look for it, ask for it, and accept it. Number six, move on from those who reject you. You cannot make anyone a Christian. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. If you planted the seed and you've watered the seed and now you've been rejected, move on. Number seven, expect persecution or at least don't be surprised by it. And then number eight, are you fearing God and not man? A good list, Father in heaven, we pray that as we continue to learn these principles, that we would look to Christ who fulfilled them all. We would look to Christ who is our model and example. A, a, a student cannot be above his teacher. Forgive us, Lord, where we thought we should be exempt from suffering and pain and even persecution. We thank you that we do have freedom of religion in our country, and we pray you would keep it that that way. We're, we're thankful, God, for the freedom of speech that we're even able to gather this morning. We're thankful. This is deemed essential business. We're thankful, God. We praise you for our freedoms in this country, for our Constitution. We pray that they would be strengthened, that they would remain and abide. But, Lord, help us understand that this is not uh, a guarantee. Help us to be ready when persecution comes. Help us to fear you, not the persecutor. And we thank you that you love us, you watch over us, and you care for us so deeply. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.